Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. Let's get this started. Lit on literature. Woo! <laughs> so this is exciting. Episode seven. Yes. Another milestone. I'm just going to say it's a milestone every single every episode, time. even I... if it's just a random odd number. No, definitely. I think once we hit 10 and then we'll be like, okay, 15, 20, 25, like going up by five yeah, instead. Exactly. Every, every episode until then will, will be a celebratory moment. <laughs> 11. No, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we're just so proud of every episode. Yeah. This is just how we feel that we're just excited. We're just happy to share it with all of you. And we're especially excited to share this episode with all of you because this is the very first time I think that we're going to be covering a book that one of us loved and the other one didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler, I didn't love it. But you know, I think that that is also what makes for really, really great conversation. As you know, I have a book club with some of my colleagues at work and some of the best discussions that we've ever had are on books that, you know, some of us really loved the book and some of us really hated the book. And then there's always just this really great moment where we understand each other a little better. Mm -hmm. We understand the book a little bit better. So yeah, I I know that for, for some of these, you didn't love the ending, but this was just, this was a strange read, right? Like even I can acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. It was strange. Um, it was a bit, slower was a bit different than what we would normally read I mean we'll go into all that but yeah so I stuck with it obviously we're doing the podcast and I could appreciate many aspects of the book but would I pick this up again no right (laughs) right and and so to give you a a brief overview to give all of you a brief overview as to why we chose it this upcoming week they are going to announce the National Book Awards And a couple of weeks ago, we had asked all of you on our Instagram page if you would be interested in us covering a book that was longlisted. In this case, this book was shortlisted. It's one of the finalists. And this is Matrix by Lauren Groff. Uh, Lauren Groff is by no means uh, new to the scene. Um, I think every, almost every single one of her books at this point has like either been a National Book Award finalist or something. I mean, she's kind of that good. And I was really eager to pick this up because I've only ever read one of her other books. I've read Florida, which is a collection of short stories that I think is really, really marvelous. And so I was excited to pick this up because I thought, okay, we can dive into the National Book Award shortlist. We can dive into an author that I've enjoyed in the past and dive into, frankly, a topic that neither one of us is particularly interested in and that we knew would challenge us, Mm -hmm. right? But that we would probably still be able to have a really great conversation about the writing. Because as we were discussing before we hit record, because it always kind of naturally happens, we start talking about the book before we set up the <laughs> microphone and, <laughs> and all of that. Um, this is a book that really shows um, just how good writing can keep you interested, can keep you invested, and how it can be something that you appreciate even if the story is something that troubles you or challenges you or maybe isn't your normal cup of tea. Yeah, no, I think she does a really great job with the writing, everything. I mean, I was very impressed, quite frankly. It's historical fiction, and the way that she described and captured every moment was completely impressive and, you know, kept me interested in that way. The story just wasn't my cup of tea, but I agree. The themes in there will make for amazing conversation. Right, I agree. And before we 
dive into a general overview of the plot so that you guys are not completely lost. Uh, Alexa, why don't you give us a, a brief overview of the wine that we're sipping this evening? We'll obviously go into some more detail towards the end, but um, we, we're obviously already sipping it, as you know, as is tradition. Yes. So cheers. Cheers. Yes. So for today's episode, we are sipping on Rebellious Wine. It is a red blend from California. Um, the year of it, the vintage is 2019, um, and it is rebellious, like our main character. So I'll go into some more details about it later on, but that's what we're ching-chinging with here tonight. <laughs> Perfect. And it's it's delicious. Yeah, I'm it's actually, great. I'm really enjoying it. it. It feels like the holidays in a glass almost. Yes. It's bold. It is very bold. We Like don't, this book. Yes, like this book too. So, um, yeah, the, the spirit of the wine pairs wonderfully with the spirit of this novel that we're going into. Absolutely. So, Matrix. This is the story of Marie de France. And this is a real figure. So, as Alexa already mentioned, this is a historical fiction novel. And what we don't really know is much about the real Marie de France. There isn't really all that much information about her historically. So... This gave Lauren Groff the opportunity to write about her with a lot, quite a bit of freedom. Uh, but of course, sticking to historical parameters that make sense. Mm -hmm. Eleanor of Aquitaine is another character in the book that is very prominent. And she, of course, was real. And there is a, a lot more information on Eleanor of Aquitaine. But essentially, Marie was living in the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine and was sent off to an impoverished abbey by the mm -hmm. queen, Eleanor. Because she was not feminine, because she was ugly. Yeah. That's how she's described in the book. She wasn't pretty enough. <laughs> she wasn't pretty enough, and she wasn't uh, marriageable. Yeah. Right? That's really, that's really what it came down to. You remain in the court until you are paired off. Yeah. And they didn't believe that she could be paired off. And so Eleanor sent her to this impoverished abbey. And when she first arrives, I mean, she's obviously incredibly angry and, and hesitant oh, to yes. embrace. <laughs> As I would be if I were sent off for being ugly. <laughs> damn. I mean, what is just, that? Yeah, like the first couple of pages, you're like, damn, La this, pobre, was, this yeah. was real life. The, the way they <laughs> described her. She's like really big and ugly and like, just, and, and you're just, you're just imagining. Like, a monster. You're imagining a monster, but you also feel so terrible because you're like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> Is it horrible to imagine her as a even worse version of Chloe Kardashian pre like transformation? Pre whatever she's been whatever doing she's lately. been doing. I feel like it's fair to say right. that that was the route they were taking. Yeah, they're. I mean, they were really. She she's described as just so hideous that you feel really, I think, terrible for her at the beginning. And and when when the author starts to describe what life was like in that abbey, you're also mortified because yeah. they were incredibly poor. The abbess was very welcoming to her. And because because Marie came from uh royal blood, mm -hmm. she became prioress when she arrived at the Abbey, which means that she had a fairly high position, a fairly high rank. You have the Abbess, which is the highest, then you have the Prioress, the Sub-Prioress, etc. So she came in and ruffled feathers because there had been women who had been living in the Abbey for a very long time and felt that they were more deserving of that position. But Marie was given that position because, of course, her royal yeah, her blood, and she was right, sent yeah. by Eleanor of Aquitaine, etc. So she came in with a certain level of privilege and was incredibly unhappy to be there. And 
the whole story, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna try to not give any spoilers as usual, but I would say that the whole story is really about how Marie transforms the Abbey mm -hmm. into an incredibly rich and empowered place. Yeah. Where the women who were living there are suddenly happy to be there because there is wealth. They come across land. They are, they become a powerful abbey. Yeah. They become an influential place. And this is all under the leadership of Marie. Yeah. And I feel as though almost um, that transformation of the abbey is a reflection of Marie's, you know, internal struggles too, as she goes through it and transformation of herself. A hundred percent, especially, you know, when, when she first arrives, I think there's a moment that says, you know, if she had any semblance of self-love, she would leave. <laughs> right. <laughs> but of course she doesn't. And she remains in the Abbey the, in, her entire yeah, life, her whole life, her whole life, which astonished me given, you know, the fact that she was sent there for being ugly, didn't want to be there, um, was kind of criticized because people obviously in the Abbey were jealous that she was bestowed this great title without even really believing in God or just, you know, she just walked off the street essentially. So I found it surprising that she stayed for so long, but I mean, your situation, I guess it's what you make of it. Right. And I think that that's really what this story is about. It's about the power within one woman and how it can transform an entire community, mm -hmm. how it can transform really almost everything around her because her power ended up going far beyond the Abbey. As we see the town, the townspeople, people knew who she was. She became this really respected figure much farther out yeah. from the Abbey. And of course that's not at all <laughs> what, what was intended for her. I think no. she was meant to just show up there and live a quiet life, a, because yeah. she was ugly again and just hang out at this abbey until she died and instead she she turned it into again this powerful incredible rich place and it's very early on in the book that she acknowledges that she was probably meant to be there she mm -hmm. she does have a moment where she starts to reflect on what it meant for her to arrive at this abbey and she says that she's not built to thrive without others. Yeah. And that quote comes very early. It's on page 43. But the more that you read and the more that you follow her story, the more that that particular quote really resonates because it's not just her thriving, you know, among others. It's her thriving for mm -hmm. others. The transformation of the Abbey becomes her legacy. And we'll touch on that at the end because then there's a very problematic moment about how her legacy is sort of, uh, well, so we'll I think maybe in this episode we'll say spoiler yeah and then you could fast forward a little bit if you want if you're reading this book yeah and 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 I also maybe before we keep going I will say this and, and I I think Alexa will agree with me this book is worth a read regardless of whether or not some moments felt tough or it felt slow or maybe, you know, a, an abbey in the 12th century is not really a storyline you'd normally be interested in reading about. But it's worth a read. And I think if you're interested in a book that is about female power, mm -hmm. a historical fiction novel that really tells the story of the potential of women, even when there was so little women could do for themselves, 
this book will revive something in you as it did in me. Yeah. I got really emotional uh, at at the end of this book. <laughs> <laughs> I started crying and I texted Alexa. I was like, I was sobbing. And Alexa was like, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, I think I was 100 pages out from the end. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I guess something. Something happens. Cool. Something happens. I'll get to it. <laughs> yeah. At least this book properly concludes. Oh my God. I love an ending. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As we know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So one of the themes, of course, and we can't, you know, ignore it, is the fact that this is an abbey full of women. Mm -hmm. So there are going to be a lot of different themes about womanhood, femininity. I mean, even just from the very beginning, the fact that she was not feminine enough, as you had mentioned, that's what got her sent away from the court. And very early on in the book, um, Marie is reflecting on what it means to be a woman, especially a woman in this particular situation. And it says, women in this world are vulnerable. Only reputation can keep them from being crushed. This abbess who found herself unmoved by her own nuns' starvation was alarmed to action by threat of dark gossip. Mm -hmm. That was a particular moment in the book when, yeah, the, the nuns were starving, there wasn't enough food, etc. But there was a moment when, yes, there was the threat of dark gossip. And that was the moment where she felt she needed to take action. Because the reputation of women is incredibly vulnerable. We still face that today. Yeah, day right? in and day out. Day yeah. in and day out. A man can get away with all sorts of things and his reputation can, for the most part, bounce back a little easier. But with women, it's very different. It, it's completely different. I mean, I think I still hear about Monica Lewinsky jokes how many decades later. How many later? decades later. And, and she did, like, come on. And also, who was in the wrong there? Hello? Seriously. Let's be real, like La Pobre, she doesn't deserve to have that stain, no pun intended, on her <laughs> reputation for the rest of her life. <laughs> As I almost spill red blend on myself. Okay. <laughs> but that's that's exactly right. That's exactly true. And and I love that even in an abbey in the freaking, you know, in the eleven hundreds, we're we're talking about the same exact thing. It's the same issues, just you know, recycled for modern day. I mean, we even cover this with Instagram before. You put out what you want people to talk about. Right. You don't put out the bad, the ugly. You want people to only talk about the good, not gossiping behind you, behind your back. And so I think, yeah, it's reflective in in that Abbey and on uh, social media and you know, just everywhere in society. Right. And. And one of the things that we notice in the book is that as soon as the Abbey starts to become successful and that other people hear about it, right, mm -hmm. as you just mentioned now. Word of mouth. Word of mouth. As soon as they see that suddenly the nuns have more than enough to eat and they're becoming a, a very powerful and influential Abbey, this is when the rumors of magic and mm -hmm. witchcraft <laughs> appear, right? Because there's no way that women could fend for themselves. How That's could insane. they? How could they come up with all those riches? It's just women. How? It's, yeah. It's, it's just women. That's, I don't know. I found that to be a very unrealistic part of the book for obvious women, for obvious women, obvious reasons. It, women can't do that. No, it's, it's so much more fucked up that they would think there must be magic involved before, ah, she just thought of a great business model to, to you know. <laughs> witchcraft or just being competent i'm gonna go with witchcraft yeah she she 
she completely diversified, you know, their products per se and how they dealt with things in the Abbey and, you know, really came into a lot of wealth and riches. But no, no, she must just, you know, be a witch, putting a spell on them, you know. Right, exactly. There's no way that they I could would, have actually done this themselves. I would even think stealing before witchcraft. Right, but right, exactly. Alas. But, alas, um, <laughs> the imaginations of, of men, men at that time were not uh, you know, particularly vast, I suppose. But she does say something really sort of interesting um, about the collective, right? Because we can't forget that at the end of the day, Marie is a part of an entire community. Yeah. And she says, for an abbey is collective. Privacy is against the rule. Aloneness, a luxury. Time to think with all the necessary work and meditation and prayer, too short to ever come to much. Marie does not wonder why so few of her best nuns have the capacity to think for themselves. <laughs> so this kind of brings us back a little bit to episode one. Yeah. Right? Because we had talked so much about how important it is to spend time reflecting, getting to know yourself, being real with what your actual needs are, how you actually feel about things in order to tackle them, et cetera, right? Glennon Doyle's Untamed has sort of seeped into almost every conversation we have after. <laughs> um, but this, this idea of a collective, especially in this Abbey, what you have is, you know, a, a certain level of shaming if you're a free thinker. Yeah, there's no free thought here. It's all... No privacy, everyone reading the same books, everyone has their tasks. No one could really veer off from their tasks to do their own thing. You're just part of the machine. Right, and you're purposefully kept busy yeah. so that you don't have the luxury of time. And it says here very clearly, as abbess, Marie sees how dangerous a free-thinking nun could be. Yeah. And there are some free-thinking characters yeah. in the book, for sure, Goda being one of them. But I think that the whole point really is to emphasize that it was Marie who didn't want them to be free-thinking. Mm -hmm. Marie is not a perfect character. Marie is a no. character, I think, that really shows us that through strength and resilience and embracing the situation that you are in, that you can create greatness. Mm-hmm. But as it says here in the book, even when she's reflecting on her own, is that Marie did have greatness, but greatness was not the same as goodness. Mm -hmm. That's a major, major, major theme in the book. Because Marie does some really, really ballsy shit. Yeah, <laughs> throughout. Throughout. She breaks all sorts of rules, including hearing confession. Mm -hmm. which was normally done by the priests who would come to the abbey to provide that service to the nuns. And when she decided that she wanted to close the abbey off and make it a more private, difficult place to get to because she was afraid that people would come and steal, loot, mm -hmm. kill the nuns, etc. There, there's even a moment when an attack yeah, happened. happened and, you know, they were all there <laughs> ready. And they knew about it because Marie's ultimate power was information. She had people in the town. She had some of the nuns who knew other people in the town who could bring in information about who was angry with the abbey and who could potentially be, uh, you know, attacking the abbey mm -hmm. at, at any given moment. So her strength was information, the very thing that she wanted to make sure the other nuns didn't have. That's what makes her powerful. Yeah. That's what made her powerful in the book. That's what helped her turn this abbey into an incredible, rich, 
and powerful place, as as we've said way too many times, right? <laughs> but I mean, like on page 183, confusion rolls in their faces, for which is the lesser sin, to leave mass or to hear it presided over by a woman? Yeah, that was one of the things that she did. That's another, yeah, another major rule she broke. And um, they were pissed. They were so mad, but they still, you know, followed her and, and listened and, you know, they had their grievances, but they just shut them down, you know, shoved them down deep because yeah. she was the abyss. She was the abyss. And, and what I, there was a moment that was really, that really touched me and has stayed with me was when she does start hearing confession and one of the nuns tells her that she had been raped. Yeah. Right. And she says that she had never admitted that to anyone, that she had never spoken of that in confession because she felt that it was only appropriate for the ears of another woman. Mm-hmm. And that hit me really, really hard. That hit me because you have to understand that in, in this moment in history and even today, when you don't have access to conversations with other women, other accepting women mm-hmm. who will hear you and understand what your situation is, you're fighting battles by yourself. Yeah. And we, I think as women, we've said this before, I mean, it's so incredibly important to band together. Healthy competition is great. Yeah. No problem. No one is against that. But we need to band together in the sense that sometimes, yeah, certain things are for the ears of other women. Yeah. Not, you know, telling your priest you've been raped because he has no, just no, like... Semblance of understanding. Yeah. I was about to... Yeah. I was losing the words. I'm imagining it. I'm no semblance of understanding. <laughs> You're just imagining yourself sitting there feeling shamed because some man exactly. is asking probably what you were wearing or something at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ask for it, my daughter? Why um, were you out so late? late. You're like, oh, fuck you. You know, like, it's just always the same response. Always. And, I mean, you guys know I come from a, a religious background, but not a Catholic background. So all of this, um, you know, Catholicism was, was somewhat new to me and I didn't realize, I mean, I knew, but I didn't realize the extent to the double standard that there was between, you know, presiding over a mass, doing confession, just certain roles and obligations that were only given to men and not, you know, the nuns or women. I just, I I don't want to be, you know, ignorant and be like, oh, I thought they all did the same thing. Just, you know, women here, men there. But no, I didn't realize it was so much like that. And I, I, what I thought was really fascinating about the book and specifically Lauren Groff's writing is that at no point in the book is there a man's name mentioned. Hmm. At no point is there a, a male character the men are only ever ever referred to in this sort of like looming mm-hmm. kind of way. The priests who used to come to the abbey, the townspeople, the men uh, who were overseeing the archdiocese. Yeah. And so therefore the leper, had an interest, like, yeah, yeah, an interest never... in the abbey, the, the leper. But the you unnamed never, husbands. You never hear a name. You never get a character. And that is obviously done on purpose. Yeah. I I use the word looming very intentionally because whenever Marie was talking about her fears for the abbey, it was always about men coming to the mm-hmm. abbey. It was always about men coming and stealing what was theirs, raping the nuns, stealing their riches, destroying what they had built. I mean, this was the fear. And when she goes into town because she 
has a moment that she gets to see Eleanor yeah. of Aquitaine again, which was a really, I think, dramatic moment. When she goes into town, she says she starts to feel bad. She starts to feel something bad inside herself because she was surrounded by so many of the inferior sex. <laughs> I enjoyed that to it's no so end. Good. I enjoyed that to absolutely no end. I was like, I was like, Lauren Groff is just a woman after my own heart. And tainted by the men. Yeah, and I just think it's so cool, like how she wrote a book where they they just loom. Mm -hmm. They just loom, and and the whole book is really about the power and the strength of these women. Because of course, Marie is the one who had the information. She is the one who created all of the wealth, but she most certainly didn't do it alone. No, no. They were able to build incredible things. They were able to create like a lake and they were able to create this labyrinth that made it really hard to to, to find the abbey mm -hmm. so that you would get lost and never make it there. Um, and like they it's really like crazy, did some crazy They made their shit. own crazy town there yeah. that you can't even. <laughs> they did some really, 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 really crazy things. And what I, what I really appreciated was like this idea of community, but also of the individual. Marie represented the individual and then the community was represented by all of the nuns and how they worked together in order to create this this place that by the end of the book felt so real to me. Like yeah. I could envision every nook and cranny of that abbey. I could envision the abbess's house that they built towards the end of the book. I could envision almost everything because of the amount of detail and love, really, that Lauren Groff sort of spilled into this book. Um, the, the, the major theme, I think, in short, is the individual versus the collective. I mean, you really see that. And, and on page 240, no one but Marie has ever made Marie. <laughs> I disagree with that. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're obviously shaped by your external influences. She would have never had been who she is if she wasn't sent away. <laughs> she yeah. would have led a very different life. Arguably, it was Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah. If I, yeah, who I'd decided agree with that. her life for her. Yeah, she was destined. Right. She was essentially destined to do one of two things. Show up to the Abbey, live there, whatever, or make the best of it. Yeah. She really only had two choices. I think Marie is an incredibly special character for that reason because we feel her that process where first yeah. she's incredibly resistant. She doesn't want to be there. She writes these really beautiful poems at the beginning of the book to Eleanor of Aquitaine in the hopes that she'll take her back yeah. to the court. <laughs> what did you make of her, her like, obsession, obsession with, with Eleanor? Eleanor? Yeah. I thought it was so bizarre. I'm like, this woman obviously wants to cast you away. Why are you so up her ass? Like, right. what is this obsession? Um, and Was I, it desperation? Yeah. Was it desperation? Did something weird go on between them? Did, like, childhood memory? I'm just, I was trying to figure out why she was so upset. Was it just, like, the the dedication to the crown? Like, I was right. not yeah. understanding why she was so upset. And I still don't. I'll, I'll be honest. I read the whole book. Paid attention the whole time, uh, took extensive notes. Still don't understand that. I, I think that's but I mean, okay. <laughs> I guess that's, I mean, humans are hard to understand too. So maybe yeah. that's just showing her humanity that we, that is something unanswered in a sense that is just true to Marie and we'll never know why. Yeah. I think that's why I mentioned desperation because it's, it's the only thing that 
that I felt I could understand yeah, in her position. Yeah, and I sense that, like, when she was first sent there, just yeah. like, oh, my God, I have to get out of here. I'm not cut for this. But. Right. She's like, where can I find paper, and how can I send this? How can I, If I send her these poems, she'll take yeah. me back. And essentially, the only reason, well, there's many reasons, but, like, the main reason I feel that the Abbey did so well and she, you know, was so successful and it was almost out of space to to her just mm-hmm. being like well you sent me here so I'm gonna make this the best place that it could ever be and then you'll regret it and then it turned into this like obsession like oh and you're gonna wish that you could be here too and, and be here with me right and <laughs> I think her plan was to have Eleanor retire there yeah right she was like if I yeah. make this place as grand as I know it can be then she'll choose to retire and live her last few years here instead of the other really rich Abbey you know, across the channel yeah, or whatever, yeah. you know? And it's like, girl, she, she sent, she shipped you there, you know? Like, that's why for me, it, it, it had, it had to have been desperation. Yeah. It had to have been, but the, <laughs> there's, there's a really, I mean, you mentioned your, your, you know, religious background. We've, we've talked about this in, in previous episodes, but there are moments here where I think that Marie is being incredibly cheeky and mm-hmm. is most certainly critical of religion or of 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 organized religion yeah. specifically. Um, there was one that really, really made me laugh on page 124. She says, there are so many fragments of the true cross in England alone that a whole Golgotha of true crosses could be constructed on a, on a moor somewhere. <laughs> and it's so freaking true. Like if you travel around Europe, like any church you it's go everywhere. to, they're like, look, we have a piece of the true cross. Yeah, and I'm like, that's everyone. a lot of pieces of the true cross. Like... <laughs> That's, I mean, are you, They are put you it through sure? a wood chipper? Yeah, like. exactly. Yeah, they just cut it out. And I'm like, come on, come on. But I just, I just love that, like, Lauren Groff, like, threw those little sort of tidbits in there. And that there was, a, I think, quite a bit of, um, of criticism when it came to religion, or at least that idea of organized religion and the lack of allowing for people to think for themselves. That's always the problem that I've had mm-hmm. with any sort of, not just organized religion, but anything, any organization that forces you to um, sort of be indoctrinated, yeah, right? Like, because you if know. you can't question your own thought, then how are you contributing? You're not. You're not. You're a sheep. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, there's, there's, there are a lot of references to that in in this book. And I think that Lauren Groff did, a, did it in a really... Um, just in a really intelligent way. Yeah. It's not it's not in your face. It's not taking away from the story. It's not being nasty. It's just a reflection of the main character because you know the main character is the one who has the information. Yeah. And I, you know, we we talk about that the people not thinking for themselves and Marie obviously being such a rebel and a free thinker, but what turned me off on her also was the fact that she you know, silence the free thinking of the nuns. She didn't want anyone to, you know, go up against her, right. give another, you know, point of view when right. they all thought that she was being blasphemous, you know, she wasn't into that and she would just kind of push them to the side and, and keep going, which it's just kind of, I get why she has to do it, but it's just a little nasty. And I, I love that you mentioned that because Earlier, you mentioned that the nuns didn't like that she was hearing confession or, you know, doing mass, right? But they also didn't do anything about it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Why? Because they were rich Mm -hmm. because of Marie. Because they were comfortable because of Marie. Because they had had more to eat ever in their lives because of Marie. So it just goes to show what it is that is willing to silence us, mm-hmm. what it is that is that we consider to be enough for us to not fight for what our convictions are so long as we are comfortable. Yeah. I mean, if that's not a universal truth, I don't know what is. <laughs> so I saw myself a little bit in the nuns because I was like, would I have gone up against Marie knowing that suddenly I live a very comfortable life because of her leadership? Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, Marie kept having these visions throughout the book, which led to projects that they did. And one of the nuns later on calls her out about it. And it's, you know, yeah, these projects keep leading to wealth and, and, you know, all these amazing things. So of course the nuns aren't going to complain about it, but they make side comments kind of like, oh, you got a vision, we do a project. Great. Thanks. But they're still, you know, complicit. Exactly. And Marie was a person who really understood that the Abbey, as isolated as it was, wasn't, mm-hmm. right? The, the townspeople were sort of right there. there an attack was imminent. Uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine even threatens her and yeah. says, if you continue to do such a good job, I'm going to have to tax you all double or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think right? it was double. So she understood that they... They lived in isolation, but only to a certain extent. Even at that time, it was impossible to truly live in isolation. And on page 126, she says, Prayer is lovely. She herself prays every day. But for such a threat, Marie will need more powerful weapons than prayer. But to engage in war with the world, one needs the world's weapons. (laughs) Marie understood that with power came, you know, threat. Yeah. I was about to do the with great power comes great responsibility from Spider-Man, but I stopped myself because I was like, someone's going to catch on and know that that's a Spider-Man quote. Also, I think we've said it before. I think we've said it before. I just love, I just love such a great quote. It's such a good quote. It was a comic book. Yes. So there you go. There you go. Book. So it's very clearly very applicable, but Marie understood this. I mean, there's no question. I mean, I was just really really, really fascinated by her as a character. And I was fascinated by her idea of leadership Mm -hmm. because the previous abbess had chosen that you were assigned a task based on what you needed to do better at. Yeah. (laughs) And Marie was like, no, no, no. I'm going to assign tasks based on your strengths. Dude, that's like saying, Alexa, you suck at math. I'm going to make you an engineer. Right. <laughs> like, what is that trash? Me and you would not have survived that. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's interesting because that's a lesson that I think even people to this day don't quite understand. I mean, that's just like good management 101, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Empower people with their strengths. Right. Point them out. I, I read something really interesting that was like, if you want to help someone or if you want to empower someone don't show them your superpowers show them theirs yeah and marie did a really great job of that i mean we we can criticize her and we can applaud certain and we can applaud her yeah i mean she she was a real human character that's what makes this book so interesting and again you know 
a story about an impoverished abbey in, what is it, 1158, I yeah. think is when the book starts. You know, it might not be everyone's cup of tea, sure. But this is a universal story. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's, it, it's not a story that feels dated. I by no means felt confused. You don't have to know or understand a lot about what living in an abbey means or no. um or the history really even of marie de france or no I, did, I didn't know it before right. this book and i didn't feel left out of the conversation right and i knew i knew of them and i knew a little bit about this history but i also knew that that there isn't a lot of information on marie de france so i enjoyed as someone who knows history fairly well or as a lover of history i appreciated that there actually was a lot of opportunity for lauren groff to make something new mm -hmm. even with a character that <laughs> has been dead for centuries you know in a time that so many of us feel that we don't understand yeah. you can because it doesn't matter how far back you go the human condition is the human condition yeah exactly and it was impressive um to the extent of i mean she did her whole life like what was it 70 something years or so I, I forget at this point but she did her whole life but it, it makes sense now you've given me this history I'm like I wish there was more on her childhood because they talk about her yeah. her mom and her aunts and how strong they were and yeah. badass and I'm like I would have liked that um that pre precursor I agree with you especially the mom yeah that one, that that really fascinated me because I know that her mom was sort of her own really interesting character and I would have liked to hear more about that and and Marie never lost the idea that women are just the most incredible creatures mm -hmm. ever right she says and female bodies are not as strong in muscle though it must be said there is no greater strength than the power in their wombs to create life yeah I mean it's 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 amazing I I've, I've heard I've heard I mean we've had this conversation before but, you know, one of the smartest things I think I've ever heard was that the only really sort of intelligent thing <laughs> that men have ever done, and I'm being very dramatic here, okay? Please, men, don't come after me and with your pitchforks or whatever, okay? Don't send but, us hate mail. Yeah, don't send us hate mail, okay? But one of the most intelligent things that men have ever done is to weaponize our superpower against us. And that is the ability to create life. Yes. We see it every day. We see it in Texas. We see it in Texas. SB8. I'm, I'm still not sleeping well. No, we're still not. Because of SB8. Um, I mean, it's just it's just such an important topic. you know. And these are women that, you know, did not have children. No, no, none right? of them. Yeah. Um, th with the exception of, of, of Wolfie, Wolfie, right? Who yeah. ends up leaving but continues to work for the Abbey as a sort of contractor. <laughs> Which that was a, nice too. That was really nice too. Letting her stay within the confounds of, you know, their community, but letting her still go lead her life. I think that was probably one of the only characters she allowed that to happen, that, that she had her own free thought in a sense and let her have it within the confines of Marie's. She even said that she reminds her of herself. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She knew that there was no way to stop Wolfie from having those thoughts, from being that powerful. Yeah. So she gave her the parameters. Yes. In order to never let her be an enemy. Yeah. She didn't do that for that other girl. Nope. Nope. You, you guys can read it. Off. She just <laughs> she just sent her off. Yeah, actually, that's a that's a really good side story. Huh. I really enjoyed that one. I was like, damn, she's ruthless, absolutely freaking ruthless. But it was in the protection of her abbey, because if these women would have listened to this rogue nun, yeah, 
there could have been some real consequences yeah. for the well-being of the Abbey. No, it would have changed everything. It wouldn't have, you know, been the same. And everyone looked very real. They were very comfortable. They were getting fat. They were fed. They had nice clothes. Yeah. They, yeah. they were able to do what they wished. So I wanted to end the conversation on Matrix um, with a quote, the quote that we posted mm. on Instagram. To make friends... One must make enemies. That's a heavy hitter. That's a heavy Super hitter. Heavy. And it was so perfect for this book because she understood that there is no way, first of all, to not make enemies. Because no. even if you are doing the best that you can for your community, I mean, she really did create a community that allowed for these women to thrive. It doesn't mean that the townspeople didn't hate her. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the Archdiocese wasn't looming over the Abbey. It is important to understand that concept, I think, in life yeah. generally. That it doesn't really matter how good you do onto others. That there were all there will always be people who do not like that you are doing well by others. Yeah. Right? That's just an incredibly important life lesson. I think you you and I are very similar in that we don't care too too much about people not liking, liking us. No, yeah. They could go fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I've I've never really like given a shit. Um I'm like, "Oh, you don't like that's totally fine. I can't Bye. expect everyone to have good taste. That's fine." But it's so important, I mean, at least to me, the type of friend that I am and the type of person that I am is that I like to I like to really be 100% for the people that I love and yeah. whatever consequence comes with that I don't really care I don't see it as a consequence. Yeah, you can't be Switzerland with friends. No. No, and there's a reason why you know <laughs> there's a reason why that's a term. There's a reason why that's a <laughs> saying, you know? Like Switzerland is a, we still make fun of them. Yeah. Because I will say this, you know, Switzerland was of course pretending to be neutral during the Second World War. Whereas at the at that moment when they were declaring that they were neutral, they were Aryanizing their workforce. They were getting rid of people of color. Mm -hmm. They were already sort of trying to move in the direction of, well, we all know Germany's going to win the war. We all know what happened. We all there. know what's going to happen. And so there's no such thing as a Switzerland. And I, maybe maybe that's the point of yeah. this book, is that it doesn't really matter how much you pretend mm -hmm. that you're not on a side. You're always on a side. Yeah, exactly. And what you choose and who you choose defines you. Yeah. And what you choose to fight for defines you. And if you sit your ass down and you don't do a damn thing, that defines you too. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that all, you know, <laughs> pop take. That's a hot take. That's a pop take. But you know what? I, <laughs> I was going to so add to strongly. it. And I'm like, you know what? No, that was perfect. That's, that's just it. Done. That's, that's the life lesson that we wanted to toss at all of you today. <laughs> and, you know, on that note. On that note, we're going to get into the wine. I actually need to pour myself a little, a wee bit more uh, since that conversation was yeah i did a lot more of the talking there so i've got yeah. i've got a half a glass still no, here that was nice and you know for a book that i didn't 
love per se. I mean, we obviously had a lot to talk about and had enjoyable conversation and we were able to dig deeper into each of the characters and scenarios. I'm curious though, would you recommend the book to someone else? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) That's interesting. It just depends on who it is, I suppose. Right. Because like, I guess like, some of our friends, like a Darwin, who's into historical fiction. A Darwin would eat it. I think would, I already recommended this book to him. He would love this book. I yeah. think, I also don't remember the last time I read historical fiction. So maybe that's part of the problem too. Yeah, I'm a big historical yeah. fiction fan. Big, so, big, big. I guess, I mean, it wasn't, I'm not saying it was bad or like the writing was terrible. It just was a very slow to start with. And I didn't really fully understand her as a character towards the end until towards the end right not because it wasn't well written or they didn't give me a lot to to go by it was just like right. I, I would just i didn't understand her obsessions she was always reaching for more wanting more controlling more but like what was her end game well that's the human condition isn't yeah it, it is Capitalism. unsatiated <laughs> and unsustainable hoarding yeah, of wealth exactly and i think i think i could appreciate it more after our talk today yeah um but when I was reading, I'm like, oh my god, this is taking forever to get to a point. Because she she's just constantly thirsting for more. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, I think that's an interesting take. And I also I wanted to emphasize too this very last point before we move on to the wine, is that a book can be shortlisted for the National Book Award and it can be a great book and it, you can still not like it. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. There's that movies like you know, that. Please, you know. please stop pretending like you like things that are really intellectual. When or, you really or very don't. sad and terrible like, and it's like yeah it's like it's okay to not like something that everyone else is digging or that like went for this like huge award like just if you don't like it that's cool okay. you've got you've got your reasons everyone's got a different taste and and this was a really good conversation because yeah I loved this book I really kind of ate it up and I was really emotional about it I I love that the acknowledgments is essentially her thanking women yeah the book is dedicated to all of her sisters it's brilliant writing it's dedicated to women it's brilliant writing it's incredible so we can appreciate a good book even if we don't like it and maybe that's the moral of this this episode yeah i I dig that i I love it i dig that pop take i love it i love (laughs) it and as we see through the book obviously we've talked about this again and again but marie is a major badass she doesn't take no for an answer any challenge in her way she just finds a way to like beat it or or do more or get better or get richer get everything like she is a force to be reckoned with um so I, i think she's truly a rebel nun and that's why i chose rebellious red blend to pair uh with marie's spirit quite frankly yeah this is a red blend from california um, specifically, the grapes are sourced from the North Coast Appalachians of Sonoma, Mendocino, and the Lake Counties. And um, it's pretty much... We haven't had a blend before, and I, no. I'm trying to remember what we've had. And I don't think we've had any New World wine before. I think everything has been pretty much Old World wine, because... I am a very old world wine person, but uh, this one caught my eye. It's uh, very interesting, and I think goes well with the theme of rebellion and having a rebellious spirit. Um, so, um, their whole their whole spiel is that nature is unpredictable, unforgiving, and unapologetic. Some of those things, I guess, we could talk about Marie with. 
<laughs> and, and, and bold. Yeah, so bold. And imposing, but yeah, in a good way. Exactly. So, and that's where they take their inspiration from. I mean, so they have this beautiful label on it that's kind of red and metallic and, and very organic feel. It's essentially the roots under the ground. And it illustrates the story of the vines. So their vines grow untamed and dig deep under the ground and search for water. So I'm assuming they don't irrigate the lands. And and it's a struggle. The, the, they're trying to reach the water, even if there's a drought, if there's, you know. And when that happens, you yield the best grapes during the season. So that's kind of what they boast about. And we could also parallel the struggle of the roots to kind of the internal struggles of Marie, you know, digging deep within herself to, to yield the best results for the Abbey. Yeah. And then the second part that makes this wine a little bit rebellious is that, so we say it's a red blend on the label, it's a red blend, but they add a hint of white grape into it which is very random and not something that you commonly see. So it is kind of rebellious in the way, especially in that region. So this blend is 44% Zinfandel, 23% Cabernet Sauvignon, 8% Merlot, 7% Syrah, and Mouvedre. French, French words. <laughs> I have to see it to be able to help you out there. Mouvedre. Yeah, that. 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 7% Petit Syrah, 3% Malbec, and 1%, here you go, of Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> 1%. Tax a punch, that 1%. All it takes. So essentially, you're, I mean, you're probably thinking, why would anyone do that? It's such a small percentage. That's kind of strange. But they really believe in adding a dash of the white wine to round out the aromas to mm -hmm. make this unique blend. And, and I mean, it is very much a winemaker's wine because of the blend they chose the right. style of the wine the percentages how they fermented the wine um and since we've been talking a lot about fermentation and aging on past episodes i want to throw in some geeky wine tech stuff so um it's okay so each of these grapes they don't ferment them together. They're fermented separately so each type of grape could outshine and show their true characteristics. Right. And then they are aged in 16 months in French and American oak. So we talked a little bit about oak, concrete eggs, amphoras, and this is, um, you know, even different than all the other wines we tasted because I'm not sure if they're using new or old oak, which makes a difference too in the flavors that they impart. But the French oak tends to taste more of like dark chocolate, roasted coffee, and savory spices. And then the American oak leans more towards like dill, coconut, vanilla extract, and more on the sweeter side of things. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, we'll probably get a lot of that when we start sniffing and smelling. So the combination is a very deliberate choice. I want to say this is like a winemaker's wine. Yes, he's he's um, taking up on nature and letting the roots dig deep and do their thing, but it's also very much a reflection of the rebellious nature of the winemaker. Yeah. So let's take a sip. Well, let's sniff first. Because that's always, you know, what we do. We swirl. Yep. Swirling. Yeah. It's actually a really pretty color. I'm looking yeah, at it, it now. It's very like bright ruby um, red. Yeah. It's pretty gorgeous. Yeah, it's got like a purple, purple kind yeah. of hue to it. It's really beautiful. It's very pretty. So let's swirl. It has, oof, packs a punch on the nose. It really does. Um, I sort of initially get cherry. Yeah. And red fruit. Yeah. Like right away. 
Yeah, it's very um like ripe, almost like jammed cherry yeah. and strawberry. Very fruity. Yeah, super fruity wine. And then I am getting... <laughs> Sorry, it's like I have to like whiff out and whiff mm-hmm. in to get everything. <laughs> I get a little bit of the... um. Like a, like a mocha kind of dark chocolate vibe on the nose. Mm-hmm. And then like some spice. It's spicy. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I will say this, I'm not usually a fan of that, but I'm, but it's for someone like me, I'm still very much enjoying this. Yeah. So it's, wor- it's worth mentioning that because I think if people hear spicy, they'll think, oh, mm, maybe it's too much for me. Uh, I'm normally one of those people, but this is this is just right. Yeah, no, it's a great amount of spice. And it's not, um, when I say spice, I don't mean like bell pepper or anything. It's like actual spices from your cabinet. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, let's smell it now. And, it, and a lot of it travels to your palate when you taste it. Yeah. I still get a lot of the same notes. Um it has a nice mouth feel. It's high alcohol. Yeah. It's a high alcohol wine. It's yeah. 15%. Which I think you can you can even sense from smelling it. Yeah. It's a little they I'm sorry, I'm doing the acidity thing. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm 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 watching. <laughs> it's I wanna say it's it's a higher acidity. It's medium plus to, to high acidity. Which also balances out the alcohol in yeah. it. Yeah. It's one of those things that the winemakers do. Um, but it's still like given all of that, um, you know, jamminess and fruitiness and, and strength in it and boldness, it's still very much bright. Yeah, it's very drinkable. Yeah. I, I I have to say, I what I like is that it seems like the right wine to be drinking now, November, December. Mm-hmm. It's a good sort of holiday wine. Yeah, definitely. It gives you Yuletide vibes. Yeah. And you could also, I think, bring this wine to Thanksgiving. Yes. And have it alongside turkey and all the fixings because it is very much like I'd rather not have cranberry sauce and just have this delicious glass of wine next Absolutely. to me like <laughs> yeah it's also higher in alcohol so if your family's gonna ask you again why you're still unmarried and have no children uh this is an excellent wine it's an to excellent bring choice to, yeah. to numb out the pain of, <laughs> of them harassing you <laughs> they don't do that with me thank goodness i don't oh think they'd God. be able to handle my my response yeah i'm you know i've been married now um our anniversary is coming up in a week or so our marriage anniversary six years married um 13 years together and i still get harassed even though we're so established now it's like the kid thing but oh yeah the kid thing i think they're kind of waning off of that now yeah thank god but no and then this price point is really great um it's 25 dollars a bottle so it's very affordable wine um and i think i think the thing to note is to take a chance on red blends because when you know you know, when you go to the store and you're looking at Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, you know exactly what you're getting in a sense. Right. When you look at the grape and the and the label, you get a sense here. Um, you might get intimidated because there are so many grapes. And I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a wine drinker and I could not pronounce that French word. Yeah. And I'm, I'm personally intimidated sometimes by red blends because I don't no, I mean, I, I know the grapes individually to yeah. a certain extent, some of them, right? Not all of them. But the idea of a blend for me, you know, you really don't know what you're getting. So yeah. I think that this is a really great choice because it is really drinkable. 
it's, as I said, I think it's really, really perfect for the ho holiday season. And it's something that I think broadly people can enjoy. Yeah. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing too bold or there's nothing offensive about this. No, you know, you can all. definitely show up to a family function with this. Um, and, and, and people will appreciate that you brought it, but red blends, I think, yeah, they can be intimidating. So this is, I think would be a really good place to start for a lot yeah, of people. Definitely. And you know, you get a lot of different notes here, like brown sugar, like a hint of liquor. Like it's very, com there's lots of notes in here. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a one note wine, which is nice. And people will, you know, appreciate it when you bring it for the holidays. They'll think you fancy. Yeah, they will. They'll know you're fancy. They'll know. They'll so. know you're listening to the best podcast out there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And um, you could find out where to buy some on rebelliouswine.com. Perfect. So... Thank you guys so much for, for joining us for episode seven. We are thrilled and we're very excited. We have some great books coming up. Um, but like always, follow us on Instagram at Pouring Over Pages Podcast. Um, make sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us, like us, subscribe to us. Make sure that you follow our mailing list to get 10% uh, off of some amazing swag. We're going to the holiday season. Yes. Our sweaters are killer. I love them. They are so comfy and cozy. I know your favorite is the crop. I think my favorite is the embroidered. The embroidered one's nice too. I just yeah. got one in. And yeah. I like it. It's hot. It's hot. So you know where to go for all your holiday shopping. <laughs> Shop small. Shop small. And as always, thank you guys so much. We, we wouldn't be doing this without you. And um, look forward to the next episode for more wonderful conversation and wine. Yep. Cheers. Cheers.